0: out more about the TrackSec podcast at www.tracksec.com. Uh, well, guys, I'm uh, blessed to announce today's TrackSec guest is uh, the, the man himself, Mr. Moxie Marlon-Spike. Hi, Moxie. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, could you could you introduce yourself to the audience, please, buddy?
1: Uh, yeah. Hey, Aaron. Um, my name is Moxie Marlon-Spike. I'm a fellow at the Institute for Disruptive Studies, and I'm happy to be here. <laughs>
0: Um as I say, I mean it's it's always a pleasure to speak to you, Moxie. I I spoke to you over at Hacker Public Radio before. Um and yeah, it's it's nice of you to come on. I I suppose I'm gonna do the usual sort of question that you ask on a security podcast to security people, but how did you get into the whole hacking scene?
1: Um well, to the nineties hacker scene. Um you know, I, I guess, you know, at least in the United States, during the nineties there was this um you know, kind of thing that was happening uh, where, you know, hackers weren't, uh, you know, there's no money in security, right? And um, so uh, there's a lot more community in terms of uh, hacker culture and people working together and sharing information because it wasn't really worth much and it was just, you know, sort of fun and interesting for everybody involved. Um, And so, yeah, I I guess I became really interested in stuff through that and, um, you know, working with those folks.
0: Yeah, I mean, for for people that do know about you, you've released some pretty damn exciting software over at uh, Thoughtcrime.org, such as SSL Strip for for starters. Um, I, I don't suppose I could get you to maybe give us a, a short description of what that tool is and 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 where you know where you would deploy it and how how
1: how it sort of works. Right. So SSL Strip is like um, it's basically trying to attack the bridge between HTTP and HTTPS. Um, the idea is that um, you know SSL on the web is kind of strange because it is in you know, a way dependent on this insecure protocol for delivery, right? Like um, connections don't often start directly as SSL connections; they are upgraded from uh, HTTP connections, and that upgrade happens when you you know click on a link that says "check out" or "shopping cart" or "log in," and um, but the user interfaces of modern web browsers is really designed to provide negative feedback. It's designed to warn you when things are going uh, amiss with your SSL connection, with the certificates that you're seeing. And uh, SSL Strip is trying to exploit that by um, preventing that SSL connection from ever uh, occurring and uh, avoiding the negative feedback. Um, so you don't get uh, some of the same positive feedback, but uh, the idea is that it's really the negative p- feedback that people are looking for. So uh, basically, just attack that bridge by downgrading uh, the connection and preventing it from ever becoming SSL. And it's a you know it's a simple trick, but it's actually pretty deadly in practice. And um, I mean, know, carry on. Buddy. <laughs> Sorry,
0: I must have. I mean, I've used the tool myself, and you know, I it's it's pretty awesome. I mean, you hear a lot of people saying that it's about, you know, user awareness, user awareness, but I, I doubt very much that most average users, even most security people, would would really notice that much that that, that the site's having the SSL stripped out of it. Um, what were you about to say anyway, Moxie, before I so rudely interrupted you? No, no, no. I mean, you're
1: right. It, it, is, uh, um, it is pretty effective. But, you know, like I've Done experiments where I run it at uh, security conferences, right uh, before a talk, and you know even so-called security professionals who are supposed to be you know very aware of these things and the threats and know that they're on a hostile network. You know they're at a computer security conference. Um, you know even then I have extremely high success rates uh, intercepting uh, credentials. So yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty deadly. You're quite.
0: You, you you know, being in fairness, you're quite well known for your attacks on SSL, TLS, um, like the basic constraints attack and the null prefix attack. Uh, I know that they're, they're, they're very different, but uh, could I get you to explain to the listeners at home, firstly, what exactly the basic constraints vulnerability was, and then maybe if I could get you to, to, to later on maybe talk to us a little bit about the null prefix attack, because I absolutely love that attack, by the way. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Okay. Well so uh the basic constraint stuff was um you know an old vulnerability where um so certificates are um you know often come in pairs uh and sometimes they can come in chains uh, where you have like a chain of trust. A you know root certificate authority will sign an intermediate certificate, which will then sign your entity certificate for your website like the uh, dot org. And um you know what I discovered is that the most SSL implementations weren't verifying the chain of trust correctly. So there's a field called basic constraints on a certificate that is supposed to um, tell you what a certificate is good for. Uh, you know, not all certificates should be able to do all things, and uh, the basic constraints field um, should limit a certificate to being able to, you know, sign other certificates or not. And uh, what I found was that, uh, first of all, most certificate authorities didn't issue certificates with that field set. Uh, it was just missing. And that even if it was there, uh, most SSL implementations would uh, ignore it. So if you got any certificate for any legitimate domain, if you're on thoughtcrime.org and you get a domain, uh, a certificate for thoughtcrime.org, that that certificate that you got was essentially a CA certificate because you could then use that to find any other certificate that you just invented and pass to a web browser or other SSL implementation, and it would accept it as valid. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so I started talking about that because, or I've been talking about that, or just bringing it up recently because um, that was the vulnerability that originally um, motivated me to write SSL Sniff, uh, which I've been updating for you know, more recent attacks.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I I was going to say it just leads so nicely onto the SSL sniff uh, tool. Uh, I talked about it recently at, at the at the Apathe University in Dundee, um, and there was you know so basically with your your valid certificate, you're basically am I right in thinking that on the fly you're able to sign basically um, certificates for for different domains um, and sniff traffic. Quite effectively, then.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it, like when you're exploiting the basic constraints vulnerability, if you had any valid certificate for any domain, you know, some domain that you legitimately own, then on the fly you could intercept connections for any other domain, generate a certificate for that that domain, sign it with your certificate, pass it back to the client, and they would accept it as valid. And
0: one question that I'd, I'd love to ask you about this as well. Um, I, I mean, I. I <laughs> Was this was this primarily, uh, uh, you know, uh, i.e., or was this across the board that the basic constraints was
1: happening? Um, it was pretty across the board. The um, most I'm not even sure if I remember now. I mean, at the time, you know, this this is like the you know early two thousands or whatever at the time. Uh, the Microsoft Crypto API was the uh, really big game in town, and so just like the these recent vulnerabilities it affected the entire Microsoft crypto API, which means that um, any software that runs on Windows uh, usually uses the crypto API um, as its SSL as stack. So um, you know, just as recently, the null, null prefix attacks uh, affected the Microsoft crypto API. So that in turn made you know not just Internet Explorer, but also Chrome, Safari, and all the other stuff that runs on Windows vulnerable.
0: And that, that that just moves us swiftly on to the null prefix attack. <laughs> can, can I maybe get you to to? to I know you are probably bought to the back teeth of talking about the null prefix attack, but maybe for those <laughs> at home who haven't kind of haven't come across it before, could I get you to kind of do as a, a kind of quick introduction
1: to the the basic concept? Right. So the basic concept is basically that um, that strings. Uh, that are embedded in certificates are um, encoded using using AFN-1 uh, as the the protocol format. And uh, so when you're parsing a part of a certificate, uh, the strings inside of it um, are, are essentially Pascal strings, uh, which means that it's like a, a tag length value system where you have like a one byte tag that says, this uh, this is a string that describes some property, then you have a length uh, that says uh, you know the the string is going to be five characters long, and then you have the actual string value, one byte per character. Um, and the you know the major you know consequence of this is that it's different than how C strings are represented in memory, right? Uh, C strings uh, you don't know how long it is; you just get a pointer to the first character, and you have to keep iterating through memory until you encounter a null character, and then you know you're at the end of the string. But uh, when you look at Pascal strings, which is how certificates uh, encode string values, a null character has no special meaning. Uh, it's just another character in your character string. And so the idea was that what you could do is generate a certificate for a domain like null nullcharacter.buttground.org. And when I submit this, Uh, to a certificate authority, they will sign it because I own the domain bahacron.org. But then when I pass it to a web browser, uh, they will pull the string out and evaluate it as a C string using a a compare against what it's trying to connect to. Uh, And the null character in the string will terminate the compare and it will uh, validate successfully. So essentially what you can do is um, get certificate signed for any domain that you'd like. Um, And then it you know, you could take the concept even further and uh, generate wildcard certificates, uh, you know, like uh, star, get that signed, and for some uh, SSL implementations, notably uh, all the Mozilla products, uh, that would match any domain. So you could just get one certificate signed that would match everything. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the basic idea.
0: Yeah, and for, for anyone that's interested in that listening at home, if you go to Thoughtcrime and, and uh, thoughtcrime.org, um, you'll be able to find Moxie's white papers on it. They're, 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 they're very interesting, I must admit. And I've done a couple of talks at our local Linux user group and, and done some stuff for podcasting. It's a really interesting attack, I have to to be honest with you. Um, I also love how you defeated OCSP, but that's a, a different story for a different day, I think. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, I suppose I mean I got this this question sent to me from a, a friend of mine the minute that they heard that, that you were coming on the show, um, and it's it's really a two-folded question. Um, I have to ask you really, what were your thoughts on the TLS renegotiation renegotiation vulnerability, and what are they now? Because obviously, as times evolved around that vulnerability, the the how it can be attacked seems to have changed slightly.
1: Yeah, um I <clears throat> it's an interesting uh, vulnerability. I personally have not found it to be uh extremely useful in practice. Um you know, it's um it's very similar to cross-site re- request forgery hmm. and you know, you you get a you get a little bit more maybe uh, out of it, but it's um, you know websites in general should already you know be designed to resist cross request, site uh, request forgery and you know a lot that you could do with the renegotiation stuff you could just do with inserting an image tag into someone's uh, HTTP stream so um, there have been a, a few cases where I, I thought oh you know you know it could be interesting to try and do something with this here but in general um, it's a really really specific. Uh, attack where you need a very specific set of circumstances uh and the stars sort of have to align to to make it really useful in practice
0: yeah i've i've not had any enjoy with it yet i have to be honest with you i mean i I'd, I'd, I'd read that some people had had some joy using the uh using it with s s l strip to to basically downgrade uh, uh an established s s l connection uh, down to to yep. to it and and do it then because am I right in thinking that the SSL strip can't obviously can't uh, uh, strip an already established SSL connection? Uh, but I was reading that that basically that there's the potential for the renegotiation vulnerability to 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 basically downgrade the connection so then you can start using SSL strip. And uh, have you had any joy making that work?
1: Um, I I haven't tried the. But... I mean, so the problem with that is that um, it's not a generalizable attack, right? Um, you need to uh, know ahead of time what your target is going to be looking at and figure out uh, some URL or request to uh, that site from an SSL session that will uh, downgrade you back to HTTP and then plug that into SSL strip. And so again, it's this really very targeted thing where you have to like sort of know a lot of the variables ahead of time and... I think in ge- more in general I I you know my preference tends to be with the network attack tools that I just want to run it and get everything on a network you know that I'm I less often find myself in situations where I sort of know everything ahead of time about what's going to happen and um can you know set up all of the all of the circumstances and variables to uh, exploit that um so, you know I think you know there are some like educations like that with the renegotiation stuff where yeah you, know, you can do some cool things with the downgrade stuff, you can do some cool things um with in you know, in a few other places, but uh it's again you know it's just really it's it's pretty
0: specific yeah it, it does for me it does seem that it's not our it's not our usual one fight you know one size fits all but it does seem that 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 there might be potential to to to, to leverage it if you know very specific maybe maybe it's good for internal <coughs> penetration testing do you know what I mean I'm quite sure of if, if you know which internal site you want to attack then I suppose it it's good for that um, yeah, no, uh, anyone that anyone that's visited your sites knows that you, like you say you have some pretty awesome projects uh, and the last time I've spoken to you uh, we had a had a you know, I chat about some of them, um, but I'd noticed that you've got a, a couple of new projects up um, that I was really tempted to talk to you about. Um, one of them being Google Share. Um, can I get you for the folks at home to kind of sum up what what it what it is and what it can be used for?
1: Right. Okay. So Google Sharing is like um it's a, a targeted um, anonymizing service and. Um, you know the idea is that I mean, increasingly now there's this consensus that um, what Google is doing is uh, getting a little bit uh, dangerous. That uh, they have a lot of information on a lot of people, and um, the privacy and imp- privacy implications of using Google are um, uh, a little bit questionable. So, uh, what we've done with Google sharing is set up a an anonymizing proxy and we've also written a Firefox add-on. And the Firefox add-on uh, runs in your browser and uh, watches uh, your outgoing requests. And whenever it sees a request for uh, a Google service that does not require a login, so things like Google Search, Google Images, Google Products, Google Maps, uh, but not things like uh, Gmail or Google Checkout, uh, then it will redirect that request Uh, via SSL, through um, the Google sharing proxy. And uh, what the proxy does is uh, maintain a pool of uh, basically identities that are shared amongst all of the users of the proxy. So um, the pool is basically a set of uh, cookies that are issued fresh from Google and Mm -hmm. user agent strings and other HTTP headers. And uh, those identities are, are passed between the requests that get proxied through the uh, Google sharing proxy. So the net result is that all of the traffic looking, uh, all, all the traffic coming from the Google sharing proxy appears to Google as if it's just a large corporate net. Uh, you have one IP address with a number of, you know, legitimate looking clients behind it. But each one of those clients um, can't really be pegged to any individual user since um, all of the requests are shared amongst. Um, and. The, you know, so basically, you you get um, you get some anonymity and are still capable of using Google services without having to visit any special websites or anything. It's just totally transparent, um, and it's uh, you know it's different than just full on anonymizing systems because um, it, it's targeted just for Google search requests and you know other Google services. So. Uh, very fast. It, it doesn't affect your normal web browsing uh, usage patterns, right? Like if you go to download a large file or something, it's not going through Google Sharing. You're using your direct internet connection, but just to these the Google that you'd like to be uh, anonymized are. Okay. okay, so that's that's the basic system.
0: I mean, um, I suppose this is a really stupid question to ask, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask it anyway. How do you think Google see Google Sharing? Then, do, do they uh, do you think they're pretty freaked about it or?
1: Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, it's um, – I, I don't know what they think. You know, right now uh, there's about 30,000 users and, uh, you know, continuing to grow, but that's, you know, less than a drop in a bucket uh, from their perspective. Uh, I think the the potential that it has is uh, as we continue development on Google sharing, it's uh, looking like it's moving more towards um, a distributed model that could eventually become something – a peer-to-peer model. And uh, when that happens, then um, it's it's interesting because um, there would be no way for Google to know whether uh, data it's collecting from any given IP address is authentic or not. Mm. Uh, And so that's interesting, right? Because um, at that point, you can sort of uh, imagine that you're in a significant way, destroying their ability to uh, collect information on people, even if they're not using Google sharing, which I think is a kind of interesting concept.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, 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 it, it lays foundations as well, for, I imagine, for other search engines that, that that may come up in the future, you know, collecting huge amounts of data. Obviously, there's not many search engines in the, the same league as Google, but I, I suppose there's a lot of lessons to be learned here, and and, and it sounds a pretty awesome project. Um completely left field of what we've been talking about here. I noticed the other day as well, I I noticed a wee while ago, but uh, I I had to put it in here. I'd really like to talk to you about your WPA Cracker site as well. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it looks awesome. Obviously, same question again for the folks at home. Could you you sum up what WPA Cracker is? Right.
1: Um, It's a, uh, a site where you can upload a a network capture of uh, from a WPA network. So you collect WPA handshake using you know any of the aircraft tools or anything like that, and then um, it's you can upload it to the site and we will perform a dictionary attack on um, the handshake. But uh, we use uh, a large cluster of um, CPUs to do the attack. So whereas um, you know we have a few different dictionary options and the smallest dictionary option that we have would take five days to run on a, you know, a very fast desktop machine, um, but we can run it in 20 minutes. So, um, you know, the idea is basically you can get these dictionary text on very quickly uh, by using our service. And we're starting to expand into other formats as well and we'll like it to become just sort of a, a general cl- cloud-cracking service uh, where uh, we can support you know all different types of formats. You can upload whatever you'd like, and you know very quickly get cracking results, uh, either brute force or dictionary.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 an awesome project. I have to be honest with you, and it it seems, you know, fairly priced. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, a fair price for the the service. It seems it's, yeah, it's it seems a really interesting project. Um,
2: could i could i just jump in here no <laughs> uh, it's usually the other way round. aaron interrupts me but this time uh, really it's um sorry to interrupt your flow here aaron but really question really for moxie um you know looking at wpa cracker uh, with a reporter's hat on as it were it looks like you know moxie's Mox is a real black hat here. You know, you can upload anything to him, and he'll just crack it for you. Uh, I, I notice that the fact mentions this is how you can recover your passwords. I'm guessing that's carefully phrased, but do you not think you're making yourself a really high target here. I mean, I understand, you know. Otherwise, I'm really asking yourself here.
1: Yeah. Uh, no, I, it's. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm actually not so sure that uh, that it's that clear, right? The um, the people I know that use this kind of thing are actually uh, network auditors and penetration testers. um, There's like an interesting contradiction, right, where um, when you're doing WPA cracking, you need a network connection to be able to upload your handshake to uh, our our server. Uh, So situations where someone's just like trying to get on their neighbor's wireless because they don't have internet access, or they're somewhere and there's a WPA network but they don't have internet access and they would like to get on, um, you can't really use their service because in those situations, you would need an internet connection to begin with uh, in, order to, in order to, you know, upload the stuff. So it seems to be uh, more often used by people who are, you know, actually doing penetration testing. They have a, a network connection of their own, and they'd like to evaluate the security of uh, whatever network they're auditing. Um, you know, that said, anyone can use it for any purpose, uh, but that's, that's sort Pretty of the contradiction really cool, at all. Uh, yeah. network Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Okay, just uh, to... Just, uh
3: thought I'd ask you. Yeah. Go on, carry on, yeah. Aaron. <laughs> oh, thank well, you. Well, b- before, before you carry on, Aaron, um, just... I mean, from a penetration testing point of view, I mean, I know personally when, when I do penetration testing stuff, quite a lot of the time it's in the contracts that we're not allowed to give this kind of information out to external companies. Um, right. So, I mean, although I mean, I, I really like the idea of being able to have a distributed cracking network that, that can do the work that would take us weeks to do in minutes, Um but it does purely come down to contractual sometimes where it simply says that this information has to be kept within house and you can't, can't send it out to external parties. Um, and I know that's come up before, but I think HD Moore was actually um, looking at doing a similar thing with, uh, with Metasploit doing kind of cracking in the background. But I know that never came to fruition. Has that ever become uh, an issue for you? Have you ever heard of people saying they'd love to use your service, but they can't because of Yeah, yeah, issues? totally. Yeah.
1: Uh, it's, yeah that's definitely uh, come up and there's some stuff that we're we're working on at metric. Um, for instance, uh, as we support other formats, um, it's harder to do with WPA and you know actually probably impossible, but um, with other formats, you can do some interesting stuff where you can blind the content um, so uh, for instance, we're about to uh, add PDF support where you can crack um, uh, uh, encrypted PDFs. Through uh, the VPA cracker, and um, you can. Uh, what we've done is written a tool that allows you to extract um, basically um, the metadata needed to do the cracking uh, without leaking any of the content. Um, and then you can send us just the metadata, and uh, you know we can perform the job that way without ever having access to whatever content it is that you're worried about leaking. Um, and you know so basically we can try and do some things like that as well as uh, a few other tricks to uh, perhaps like you know uh, help with that problem
0: sort of back on the, the 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 shoulders of that question Moxie, um would it be fair to, to some you know, would it be fair to say that maybe the relationship that you're having with people with w p a cracker is actually rather than than third party testers actually system admins of the organization wanting to test their own wpa key rather than um rather than third party uh, penetration testers saying to to their clients can we obviously because of contract problems and so on and so forth is it fair at the moment then it, to, to say that maybe it's it you're working pretty much with the actual physical owners of, of the, 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 the the technology yeah i
1: don't know i mean it's um you know, at the end of the day, I know very little about uh, the clients uh, in general. You know, it's all I know are the sort of people I know that use it, and, and there have also been uh, cases that I know of where uh, penetration testers uh, have been able to, you know, talk to whoever they're doing the auditing for and say, "Listen, you know, this is uh, this is a service that you should allow us to use." It's going to save everyone money. What? It's going
0: to save everyone
1: money. Yeah, exactly. It'll save you money, and and uh, the 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 truth is that like if um, if you audit the their wireless network and we crack their password, they should change their password, right? you know, or or deploy something else, right? So it's not uh, that much information isn't really leaking. Um, so uh, you know, a lot of times they can. Uh, get
0: jumping back to kind of earlier talk uh, earlier questions uh recently i'm i'm seeming to hear a a lot of people telling me that that you know SSL isn't long left for this world um i mean what do you what do you think the answer is do you do you think that we build a replacement or do we kind of try and patch SSL for modern requirements i mean I'd, I'd really like to get your your thoughts on the state of SSL and and, and what needs to be done
1: yeah, okay. Well, so it's interesting. I think there are a few lessons um, that can be learned from the stuff that's happened recently with SSL. Um, I mean, first of all, if you look at SSL as a protocol, it is terrible. Um, you know, it is, um, you know, second to Kerberos, kind of uh, uh, the perfect roadmap of mistakes that uh, people have made in designing future protocols. Um, so you can look at the evolution of SSL and realize that, you know, all of the things that um we have things about how to design a secure protocol are you know sort of mapped out through uh the mistakes that are embedded within the protocol. Um so at the protocol level, yeah, it you know it doesn't look great. Um, you know that said, um people have managed to sort of uh you know tack things off and uh do implementation based workarounds and all the stuff to compensate for a lot of the real protocol level problems. Um a lot of the attacks that we've seen recently offer implementation um, errors. Um, And, you know, they're sometimes interesting in that they're, you know, implementation bugs that every implementation makes, Um, which, you know, is kind of a unique situation. Um, But, you know, I think if you look at um, sort of the history, like if you look at just the history of the attacks on SSL that I published, um, there is not... Uh, an SSL implement- implementation that has ever existed in the history of SSL implementations that has been secure. But if you look at, you know, starting from, like, the LAP attack that I published, you know, back through time, um, you know, all the attacks sort of overlap to cover every SSL implementation. Um, and I don't think that we should assume that it is any different now, uh, that, uh, you know, at this point, there's an SSL implementation that is somehow secure. Um, but I don't, you know, to me that says less about SSL than it does just software and, you know, the inability to write secure software. So I think, you know, just, you know, one thing that we need to come to terms with and that, you know, people haven't coming to terms with for some time now is that secure software is just kind of impossible, um, that it is uh, not really reasonable to think that uh, we're going to be able to get all the bugs or that we're ever going to be able to make something, you know, as complex as an, as an SSL stack uh, completely secure.
3: So, do you think we're in a situation where we we're kind of using SSL as a crutch, basically saying our application is insecure by design, but as we've got SSL, we're fine?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I, and I but this is something that you see all the time, right? I mean, you need to, you know, you know, one of one of the first uh, questions that any auditor should ask is, you know, what happens when you're compromised? Um, n- not if you're compromised, right? That you know, to, to think that any one piece of technology is going to uh, provide sort of absolute security for your entire system is uh, kind of dangerous, right? Because, you know, security software in itself is, uh, is always vulnerable. <laughs> you know, there are, there are vulnerabilities that exist in intrusion detection systems. Um, so, uh, you know, just like anything, you want to layer defenses, you want to try and uh, isolate, um, isolate data and uh, areas of your network. And so when you see stuff like, um, you know, for instance, uh, the Mozilla auto-update protocol, uh, which was depending on SSL for uh, security against all possible attacks, um, these are d- dangerous situations to be in because um, uh, you know, I think we've seen and will continue to see that it is unreasonable to think that that one piece is ever going to be absolutely secure. Um, so you know, if you're using SSL but not signing your updates, uh, that's probably a problem.
3: So as long as uh, people are using Defense In-Depth, um, using SSL along with um, you know, hashing of passwords, using SALT, challenge responses on logons, um, and you know, doing things like uh, using Macs for, to, to prevent people from changing data when it's in transit, then they should be as secure as they can be. If they're just using SSL, what you're trying to say is that they're already onto a loser. Yeah,
1: I mean, that's the, yeah exactly the deal is that. Um, you know, no one is ever going to really work but you know maybe if you combine them all together you'll get something that overlaps in a way that uh you know gives you you know the security you need But uh, even then, it's it's a uh, it's a difficult game um
0: moxie um uh, the last of my questions i know that the lads have got a couple more for you but um uh I'm gonna ask you the fluffy question, but uh, you know, what's your advice to people that are wanting to get into the the hacking scene? You know, people wanting to get involved now. Um, you know, what would your advice be to to a fresh face wanting to to get involved? Um,
1: I would say uh, start with the basics. You know, um, read TCP/IP Illustrated. Uh, you know, volumes one, two, and three. Uh, read. You know, apply for cryptography. Uh, read, uh, you know, the design and uh, design and implementation of computer hardware. Like, um, you know, if you really, ultimately, security is really just about, um, you know, understanding how all the pieces, pieces fit together and then finding the holes in the glue. Uh, and so, you know, starting with the basics is the best place to to begin.
0: Brilliant, Tom. Do you do you have questions? Tom, are you there, mate?
4: Yeah, I'm here. Yeah.
0: Which uh, you you had some questions for Mark, didn't you?
4: Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple, actually. Um, The first one, um, I didn't actually put this on the the correspondence before, but it's just come up now. Obviously, we've been talking about SSL, and, like, the no prefix attack before and stuff, but how did you actually get into, like, working on that? Like, what what was it that drew you to actually doing that work in the first place? Um,
1: Well, uh, I guess, you know, I've just been interested in secure protocols and uh, SSL for a long time, and... um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, attacking something like SSL is often interesting just because uh, it's so foundational in a lot of ways that, um, you know, if you find one bug, um, you have really probably hit a lot of pieces of software because there's only a few stacks and, you know, so many different pieces of software then uh, linked to those stacks. Uh, so it's an interesting place to look for stuff. And, um, you know, I'm just interested in secure protocols in general. So, you know, finding those little holes in the glue is, i don't know—just kind of fun for me. Mm-hmm.
4: And when, you, when you did find the, the vulnerability mm. in what you found, um, recently I found a, a hole in uh, WordPress, and I got some media attention. Some was good, and some was bad. And I mean, what I'm trying to ask is, did you get any bad media attention from from breaking this? And like, how did you how did you go about dealing? And how did you react with that?
1: Um, no, I wouldn't say that I got any real, like, bad media attention. Um, You know, it seems like, uh, you know, reporters, you know, particularly in the sort of trade press these days are, you know, hit to the idea that, um, you know, security research isn't bad. Um, You know, certainly in, like, the comments of some articles that I saw written, there were people that were like, this guy should be locked up in jail, you know, whatever. Um... And you know, then the sort of you know negative feedback that I got was from people like PayPal, right? Who responded, you know, not openly, but sort of uh, more surreptitiously. Um, and you know, that's a, a whole saga of its own.
0: <laughs> I think. Uh, I think, Chris, are you there, mate? I heard someone drop off. Go back to limbo. <laughs> he's, back <laughs> to, he's back to limbo. Robert, do you do you do you have any questions
2: for Moxie? Well. Yeah, actually, and, and this this is a bit of a rotten one to drop to drop on you, Moxie. But um, some of these um, SSL issues, if you like, would you see IPv6 perhaps mitigating some of those? Uh, my apologies if you don't, if, if you or IPsec, I should say, uh, IPv6 um, mitigating those in any way, or is is, is it one of your fields? IPv6. IP no IPSEC, IPsec well obviously that that is linked with IPv6 but uh, IPsec itself the the, I, the the lower level um encryption.
1: Right right yeah. Um I mean yeah like uh IPsec is all right it's um it's uh, definitely um some lessons were learned <laughs> in the design of IPsec. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's uh it's um you know it it seems to have proved very difficult to deploy uh and
2: um it certainly has difficulty like, uh, with, with with getting the certificates between sites but yes yeah carry on yeah and
1: i mean even if you look at um you know for instance like uh it seems to me that like vpn uh software was you know you know where ipsec really uh ended up being uh, sort of deployed and mm-hmm. strangely if you look at um you know, where that stuff is going, it's all moving towards SSL VPNs. Uh, Everyone is abandoning (laughs) IPsec uh, for their VPN solution and uh, and deploying SSL VPNs instead, which, you know, is interesting and confusing and all that stuff. But it seems to, like, come down to just uh, ease of deployment and, um, you know, the way that the implementations work on software. Um, Yeah. You know, like...
2: Sorry, my apologies. It's the it's the Good. time delay. I reckon. I think it's hard to know when someone's uh, sort of stopped. But... Right.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, no. Go ahead. What were
2: you saying? Sorry, I was going to say it's 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 another case of ease of use trumping possibly better security in in effect.
1: Yeah, and, but it's it's also uh, it's a little bit more than that. I mean, there's there's one thing that's like ease of use, and then there's another thing of just like is it usable at all? <laughs> you know, that mm-hmm. there's. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you, know, you know, some people can't VPN into their like corporate networks because uh you know, the VPN client like segfaults the Linux kernel and stuff like that. You know, that um you know, there's some there's some really bad implementations out there that it's not it's just not it's not even just a matter of deploying them, but it's just like they don't even work at all. Um and so, you know, that's problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Um
2: I, I had one other question really which was um I was looking at uh, – this This is not related to the SSL thing. Well, it it sort of touches it gently, I suppose. I was looking at your knock-knock tool, um, the port-knocking yeah. tool. I thought that was an interesting approach, that instead of going down the let's build a knock-knock server and slap it on all the ports and have a, yet another tool, which could be subject to vulnerabilities, that in fact you've tried to make it as small and simple as possible. Um and uh, p- perhaps you could describe, I know Aaron's asked you to describe all of your tools, but I think this one's c- quite an easy description, really, for people. You know, perhaps you could describe that. I'm sure they've heard of port-knocking tools. Sure. How yours differs in, in some per- way.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, if you look at, you know, the the basic port-knocking concepts, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense. You, you want to expose as little code um, to uh, strangers as possible. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times there's no reason that anyone should be able to connect to, um, you know, your SSH daemon. There's no reason that anyone should be able to connect to your IMAP daemon. Um, You know, this is software that I guarantee you right now has remote vulnerabilities in it. Uh, So you want to, you know, partition that off as best you can. And, you know, the the initial port knocking concept uh, made a lot of sense, and uh, people looked at it and thought, well, isn't this really just security through obscurity? You know, how many different port combinations are there and all this stuff? And so the problems that emerged really suggested the use of something like cryptography uh, to to do this sort of authentication. And people just lost their minds. I mean, uh, people went crazy with this. I mean, they they started embedding their uh, port knocking stuff into the kernel and like writing kernel modules. People started writing whole services that exchanged UDP packets and uh, you know did RC four and all this cryptography and stuff. Like some things it's like a you know a five way handshake to to open a, a a port, and um you know to me it you know it seems like yes, there were some problems that needed to be addressed with the original port docking concept, but um the the idea behind all of this is is that uh you want uh reduce complexity <laughs> you know that you want to simplify and reduce the code path that you're exposing to people. And when you start using, like, you know, libpcap to inspect every packet on the network or, you know, write whole other network services or invest stuff into the kernel, that that's sort of the opposite of the direction you want to be headed with this. Um, and so Knock Knock is an attempt to kind of remedy that by uh, having, like, a super simple, very easy-to-audit port knocking implementation that doesn't use libpcap it doesn't run in the kernel. It doesn't use any crazy libraries, and it has a you know contemporary NTCA secure protocol where a single packet is sent to open a port. Um, and so, I, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it, and I think it's pretty easy to deploy and to use. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean uh, looking. I looking sorry. Yes, yeah,
2: sorry, I mean, looking at it, I've looked at look at other, you, you know, um, SSH knocking and, and port knocking stuff before, and. and like you, I suppose, looked at it in despair and thought, "You know I'm only wanting to secure this. you know I don't really want an entire course in uh in, in, in all these these wonderful servers that you've set up, so yeah, looking at it its it's it's nice and simple. Create a certificate for the for the server client pair and, and distribute them. Yeah, it's,
0: it's uh, a, maybe maybe it's to turn a phrase of yours, Bob. It's you know users are after two AA batteries and we give them nuclear power. <laughs> <decisions normally.
4: laughs>
2: yeah. well this one's a this one's a one granny solution or what I would call a one granny. Or I would call this a one sysadmin solution. You know it's a you haven't got too much to get your head around. And if you've got seven hundred things to do that day, this is one that you could you can go right. I need that that and that. Create create the, the, these these certificates distribute it. I'm done. I can move on to the next job and feel reasonably confident about it. For the same reasons that Moxie is pointing out there, that it's simple. You can look at the Python code. Uh, you know, it's not massively complicated, and uh, y- y- you know, I, I think it's the way to go. And as as again, if you are talking about Libpcap for these other things, if there's a compromise in Libpcap and it's looking at every single packet that's going by, then you know let loose the dogs of war on your network, really, whereas with this, then perhaps you might allow someone to attempt to get into your SSH at worst, or at worst, all your ports are blocked. So, you know, um, yeah, I think it's an interesting tool.
0: Chris, um, was that your last question for Marksy, by the way, Roman?
2: Well, yeah, it's a question come from making my own point, so I'll just be quiet now. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't be the
3: first time that's happened. (laughs) I was going to say that makes a change, is not it? <laughs> now, now, pot, kettle, black. <laughs> Chris,
0: we had this, we had this beautiful link from Moxie talking about eBay, uh, not eBay, PayPal, and you dropped off the call. Uh, I know you had some questions for Moxie, so you know, jumping back. Yeah.
3: You. I, I did really. I wanted to, to, to cover the PayPal stuff because um, I've not been a big fan of PayPal for the last year or so. Um, I, I, I don't know how much you talked about it when I dropped off, but but I know that they um, PayPal circled around and weren't particularly happy about um, some of the stuff you were teaching in your course, um, which quite quite uh, luckily um, links in with my second question, which is about your upcoming courses. Um, I mean, is the the stuff with PayPal still ongoing? Or is that now resolved?
1: Oh yeah, they they still have my money. I mean, uh, they, it's ridiculous. I I um, it's a very interesting situation, right? Where you think that like uh, one of the most important qualities of a, a payment processor or you know something that is essentially masquerading as a bank is trust, right? You know that if um, if at any time you know this this third party. Um, you know, steals like their customers' money, or just takes it, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you'd think that that would sort of be the end of them. You know, that that word would get around and pe- everyone would stop using them. Um, but they do this all the time.
4: You know, they they
1: just you know confiscate people's money, and um, people continue to use them because uh, they've really sort of uh, dominated this market in a way where it's almost impossible not to. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really bad situation, and um, you know, I, there's basically nothing I can do. You know, I have no recourse um, to, to get my money back, and uh, they've just decided that uh, you know they, you know, didn't didn't like the things that I was doing, and so you know now they've uh, they've retaliated by, by taking my money.
0: To to jump in here, uh, uh, it's probably fair to ask you if you could maybe um, recap for people that. Don't know the story about what exactly happened with PayPal and no prefix certificates, and and just just kind of your views on that because, like you say, some people at home might not have actually heard the story. I'd be surprised if they haven't, but you, you know, <laughs> better better cover the fences here.
1: Right. Um. I mean the the uh. I guess like the basic outline was um. You know, so in my first of all, in my talks, uh, I often use PayPal as uh, an example of like a site that you want to might might want to intercept communication for, and you know, I do that because it's it's an obvious example, and you know, it's inflammatory, right? That people realize that if their uh, PayPal credentials are compromised, that that could be dangerous, and um, so you know, they they don't like that. I mean, they um, you know, someone from PayPal sent me an email about that after I uh, you know gave the talk and. Um so then things were kind of unsteady and then someone published a null prefix certificate for PayPal to uh, the full disclosure, I think, mailing list. Um and uh you know they freaked out and responded by suspending my account, uh, which is, you know, kind of funny. Um and uh then, you know, the saga has kind of continued with Google Sharing where they suspended my PayPal account, and I was able to get the EFF to kind of negotiate with them. And um, PayPal said, "Okay, it's fine if you know we'll, we'll sort of back off, but the deal is that you can't um, you can't use PayPal for anything associated with Thoughtcrime.org um, because you know whatever they, they're taking a stand against thoughtcrime." Uh, and uh, so I, I haven't been. But then I was using PayPal to accept donations for uh, Google Sharing. And uh they you know, a lot of people very generously donated to Google Sharing and then uh PayPal uh, suspended that account and has held onto that money for months now and um isn't you know isn't isn't working with me to resolve um you know, to to help me get my money back <laughs> eventually. So it's it's kind of a you know complicated ongoing saga here, but do you, do you uh, think that maybe just the fact
0: that do you think that maybe yeah. it's a, a problem of? I hate to say this, but it's almost like a lack of regulation of PayPal. That there isn't an ombudsman, there isn't a, an overseer of uh, the giant that is PayPal, and that there yeah, is. They're no, a bank
2: in all but name. That's what they
0: are. Mm-hmm. But there's mm-hmm. no way for you to, to.
2: But there isn't because because they they like they, they, they let they, they like to occupy that furry space in between because if they were a bank with their capital B, if you like, they would be regulated. But they do handle in effect they're handling money, it's just made to not look like money. They they're a broker in really, aren't they? They sit between a seller and a buyer, so they're a broker. But they are in effect
1: a Yeah bank. yeah, but you know, they're yeah, they're not classified as a bank and so they're not regulated in those ways and yeah, I mean, I, is not unique need as he's is pointed out, the,
2: you know. As he's pointed out, he's not unique. Sorry sorry Marcus, I didn't mean to interrupt you. As I said the time zone the the Delay difference here, I think, is causing the problem. But uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, yeah, no. I mean, there's
1: exactly there's, there's plenty of them. people who have uh, problems with people's money yeah, has, people's money is taken suspended
3: all the time. Well, they did it for ha- with hackers for charity as well, didn't they? There was some kind of mistake in their paperwork, so they suspended all their accounts and left Johnny Long stranded in the in, uh, in the middle of nowhere with uh, with no access to any of his money. Um, but obviously, the, the the bad press surrounding um, a charity being cut off by, by PayPal um, forced them to actually get things back up and running again. Um, so, I mean, although there's people there who support you and who, who are going to complain and who are going to say, well, I'm not going to use PayPal because of what's happened here, there's not quite so much outcry as there is with, with Hackers for Charity, for example.
1: Sure. And and the other problem is that there's nothing else. Uh, you know, there's no... They don't really have any, like, serious competitors uh, in, in that exact market of what they're doing and so it's kind of hard to just say, well I'm gonna stop using PayPal because um you know they, they are sort of like filling this 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 market that um you know people care about and
0: uh they're a monopoly at the end of the day. There's no two yeah. two ways about it. You're absolutely right. If you want to take donations now You you have you're going to have to think of very alternative mechanisms for dealing with it because not only is it the case of you receiving money, but also how do people most people making a donation are going to have a PayPal account? You're now going to have to ask them to 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 add in another layer
2: of abstraction. You you know, it's interesting as as a business is we don't. Deal with if, if someone only says you can only pay us by PayPal, we contact them to find out how else we can do it. Not because of any <clears throat> um, particular views on PayPal, but just that as a business, we don't want to go down that route. You know, we have checks, we have direct debits, we can pay in all sorts of ways. And it's just incredibly awkward for us to pay through PayPal. And where I've tried to make donations to some open source projects, which I, ha- I have done it's always turned out to be awkward because the only method of, of payment or that they perceive as payment is PayPal. Um, it, it has become awkward. You know, in the end I've had to usually do something like find out maybe what web servers they're using and, and offer to pay for that service um, for them as a donation. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it isn't ideal for businesses. Yeah. But for for simple, end, simple end users, my apologies for that, but you know what? For, for Harry Homeowner, I think yeah, that's fine. Or for for small open source project, but it does make it awkward as a business to to, to deal to deal with people and to even donate in some ways. So it is an all PayPal's way, if you know what I mean. But um, yeah,
4: maybe maybe the uh, maybe the answer is maybe creating something like PayPal and then and then arguing that PayPal having a monopoly on it and that it isn't fair. And going well, po- to the possibly port. having.
2: Uh, a <laughs> An open source clearinghouse would be the other way, maybe you know, because there's a lots of projects I'd I'd like to donate just you know twenty five quid to I use every day as a business and I think well really I should be donating to this because you know it's a vital part of what I do, but if I go to the website and the only way I can pay is by PayPal and there's no other way, then I'm sorry lads you know I'm I'm not going to donate there's there's no I'm not going to donate directly because there's no mechanism by which I could do it if there were perhaps a central a bit like you have. Uh, ignoring all the other SourceForge issues, but a bit like you have SourceForge for hosting your your project. If there were a similar way that you could have a central donation place um, that business gets come to get an invoice from you and deal with you in a business-to-business-like way, and then they dealt with distributing it. Um, but a bit like the one they use for, the model they use for... And again, this is going to upset people. Perhaps the model they use for collecting royalties for music—you know, that sort of thing. Um, Burn them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do. You know, as a business, I'd love—I I'd love to donate more. I'm not the only one. No, I'm sure out there. You know, not all businessmen are. You know, you, you shouldn't always get an image of a, a grey being circling you and about to devour you. Because we aren't all like that, honest, gulf. But yeah, you know, something like that would be better.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to turn this into a PayPal thing, but I mean, I know you mentioned about them being the only one available. That's, it, it is and it isn't true. They're the only ones available that aren't based in Russia and used. Some- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, there are options out there, but none that we would like to be using. No, um, no, so- no. And uh, Honest
2: Bob's uh, open source exchange isn't quite up and running yet, but when it is, I'll let you know. Not,
3: you work on uh, let, let us know and we'll, we'll move mobs <laughs> over. <further. laughs>
2: Moxie, I mean, obviously obviously,
0: another question for you there is is how are you actually handling, uh, are you getting donations now and have you found another mechanism that maybe doesn't mirror PayPal but but achieves some, some of your objectives, or are you just high and
1: dry? Uh, yeah, it's, I'm pretty high and dry. The, I switched to this thing called Tippit2, T O tip and um, you could, you know, it's like the tip jar system or whatever, it seems all right, and... Uh, just after I switched, they, like, shut down. Uh... <laughs> because they got... were... The moxie kiss of death. They got a fraud problem or something. You know, like, there, there are too many, like, I don't know, something was happening and they basically shut stuff down to try and implement, like, better abuse heuristics. But the funny thing is, that, like, you know, I switched and I was like, hey, I switched to this. And, you know, people generously made some donations and, uh, like, you know, the the threshold for which you can cash out is something like a hundred bucks and you know, I have like ninety eight dollars in there or something. Uh and the you know, they shut down so I can't get any more donations in there. So I'm like, you know, two dollars below the threshold of what I can cash out. So that money has just sort of gone too, right? Because of, you know, uh it's it's bad.
3: That's really unfortunate. It's <laughs> that's just yeah, really, really bad luck. <laughs> Well, I mean, hopefully, some of you—I know know you're doing quite a lot of training at the conferences now. So hopefully, that's uh, bringing a more direct flow of uh, of cash to keep your projects running. I mean, do do you want to talk briefly about the the training you're doing? Because I know quite a lot of people have been talking very highly of it.
1: Oh, good. Yeah, um, I've been doing a training uh, called "Designing Secure Protocols and Intercepting Secure Communication," and uh, the deal is it's a two-day training, and the first day is all about uh, designing secure protocols. Uh, It's about Um, you know, how you combine these uh, cryptographic building blocks uh, into something that is secure. And um, we go through all that and then use that knowledge to look at, um, you know, sort of existing secure protocols and evaluate how they stack up and uh, attack some kind of mock protocols and stuff. And, you know, everything from SSLs, SSH, to encrypted web cookies, um, uh, you know, you you have a better idea of how to look at it and evaluate whether something is or is not secure. And the second day is uh, all about tricks. It's about, you know, um, attacking the little holes in the glue between uh, secure protocols and um, really, you know, sort of practical hands-on using uh, tools to perform network attacks and that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's been pretty good, and uh, I think it's a fun training.
2: And is that U.S.-based?
1: Well, let's see. I'm doing an upcoming training at uh, Black Hat Europe, in I guess that April. Oh. Uh and yeah, maybe at a few other conferences uh in the future as well. Okay.
3: Yeah, are you I understand you're gonna be doing it at BrewCon as well, is that right?
1: Yeah, I think um I'm not sure I'm not sure how that's uh, shaping up, but if um yeah there's some possibility that I will do it at BrewCon should enough people sign up and uh the the training fills up.
0: You have four of us signed up already, by the way. (laughs) We're not paying through it through PayPal, okay? (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have to give you cash on delivery or
1: something.
0: (laughs) Uh, Chris, have you got any more questions for Moxie? Well, I take that by the dead silence that he must have dropped off.
3: <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm just about here. I'm just about here. I mean, the the, the last thing I wanted to ask about was uh, a comment you made on your Twitter feed. Um, I know you're at RSA conference in San Francisco, and you mentioned that uh, your name was up in lights on one of the uh, the vendor walls as the Moxie SSL stripping and network attacks. <laughs> um, is, yeah, that is Something yeah. you're seeing more often now.
1: Is it what? It oh, is it something I'm seeing more and more? Um yeah. Uh I no, I don't know. I wasn't even there though. Like a, a friend of mine sent me that picture. Um uh, it was just I don't know. It was pretty funny, right? But uh I can't remember what the wording was. It was like defeating the Moxie attack or something like that. Wait um, <laughs> Moxie know. goes in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was just some random uh you know, vendor booth or whatever. But yeah, I yeah. I no, I don't often see uh, my name like on billboards or whatever.
3: What what I thought was interesting was that uh, underneath it, it just says DNS hacks. So it doesn't say the Kaminsky attack. It just says the Moxie attack. So, uh, <laughs> so obviously you've reached, you've reached that threshold now
1: where, uh,
2: yeah. where you've yeah, not been right.
3: off the list. Well,
2: oh, Moxie, if you need an agent, Chris yeah. is your man, obviously, you know. <coughs> yeah,
1: right. Well, it could be that, like, if they'd mentioned Kaminsky, like you would have to pay some kind of royalty or something where they know that I've never, you know, I don't have it together enough to sue them or whatever for uh, trademark. <laughs>
0: <laughs> never know when uh, PayPal give you your cash back you never know. <laughs> <laughs> That'd
4: be great though, wouldn't it? The Team
1: Attack. <laughs> that just Rainbow sounds like Ma- a com- uh, it just sounds
0: like a computer game, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Rainbow 6 Team akata. That's
0: The one. Um is there any more questions from the hosts for 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 Moxie? hold on from me. Not for me. Um, no, I'm
2: good.
0: Well, what's left for me to do is basically wrapping up. Firstly, Moxie, um, absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I've really, really enjoyed speaking to you again. Yeah, yeah it was great. Um, you can find you at www.thoughtcrime.org. Um, I believe you're on Twitter this time now. Last time we spoke to you, you weren't on Twitter. If I'm right, that's at Moxie underscore underscore or something like that
1: yes yes regrettably i'm
0: there <laughs> um is there anything you want to say to the folks at home before we we wrap up the interview
1: no no i um just thank you guys for having me on and yeah it was great talking to you guys and uh yeah, yeah. hope
0: you
1: we
0: uh we, you, you could keep you, it up I'm, yeah we, we 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 love having guys like you on it's, it's just it's a lot of fun um <laughs> do feel free to to, to join us uh, to stay on the line. We're going to talk about some new stuff, and, and we've got a tech segment sort of inspired by some of your tools as well. Um, but all that's left me to do is thank Moxie, uh, and we'll be moving on to the new section.
1: Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.